Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. On this show, we're going to talk about schizophrenia. As many of you know, this show exists because of my personal battles with depression and generalized anxiety disorder. So I want to make sure that brain health is something that we talk about fairly often on the show. In fact, that uh, brain health instead of mental health is going to come in handy just a little bit later. Uh, I've already recorded these interviews, so I know what's coming and I've learned something new today. Schizophrenia is something that is touched on fairly often in genre cinema, uh, but how realistic is it? I'm not so sure. Superhero movies, horror, sci-fi, they tend to make things a little more fantastical than what the reality is. So in just a little bit, I'm going to be speaking with Linda Salters, the founder of Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Alliance of America. And uh, as I mentioned, she's going to teach us a lot. But first, The Voices is a new movie about a young woman who seeks sanctuary at a remote family home where she struggles to cope with her sister's paranoid schizophrenia and her own sanity before it tears them apart. It stars Amanda Markowitz and Victoria Matlock and has a very cool appearance from Lynn Shea. Joining me now to discuss the film is the writer and co-director of the film, Bradley Fowler. Welcome to the show, man. Hi. Hi, David. I can't wait to dig into this great movie of yours. But first and foremost, I, I want to get into a little bit about the company because it really kind of intrigued me that this isn't a director that decided to start his own production company. This seems like a little family unit that <laughs> is uh, is making several ventures together. So it's like somebody will say, hey, I have an idea. Great, I'll write the script. Okay, well, I'll star in it. Uh, tell me a little bit about how uh, Three Tales came along and uh, what you guys do. Uh, yeah, Three Tales production is uh, pretty much exactly that. Um, I met Amanda Markowitz. I was a uh, guest uh, sort of teaching a class at the Margie Haber studio, and uh, she was one of the students. And after the class, she came up and had a couple of questions uh, about a, me a specific method that I sort of uh, work on. And we met for coffee and we hit it off. And um, she uh, she had all these ideas of, of um, you know, creating her own content. And uh, I said, sure. And so we just started, it was, it started off just her and I, and then her husband. Uh, and shortly thereafter, I met uh, uh, Victoria Matlock, who's now my wife. So went from three tails to four yeah but we just started to uh it was basically myself her and her husband and uh he's a businessman and we were both well both are artists and then when i met my wife uh, uh she got involved but uh started off just doing shorts uh we were making shorts and uh we actually turned those shorts into a full-length feature film so i don't know if you guys have seen the trailer or movie love meet hope um, but that's what it is. It's a story about an old man that wrote love stories every day of his life for his wife. And then when his wife dies, the grandson who's sort of given up on love learns to love again when he finds all those stories. So basically we took those vignettes and repurposed them to make it into a feature as opposed to losing that. So we basically just, when we, we have an idea that we want to, um, work on, I, I'm usually the one that, that 
churns out the script and um, we, we try to find positions where we're you know, going to be able to act, but obviously we want to create content that is also marketable. So it's not, we try to make it as, as non masturbatory as possible. <laughs> I, I hear you. Uh, sometimes things are a little hard to approach. Yeah. Um, but speaking of, you know, uplifting films about love that lasts <laughs> and in- inspiring people through the generations. Yeah. You, your new movie, The Voices, if I were to explain The Voices on in one way, I could say, oh, it's a very typical horror film uh, because it has this thing and this thing and this thing, but it's really not. It's really a grounded take that kind of dispenses with a lot of the, uh, overly supernatural type of stuff. Uh, where did this idea come from? What appealed to it? Uh, because like I said, there, there's certain times I was watching the film going, I know what's going to happen. Oh, that didn't happen at all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so what about this grabbed you or whoever it was that came up with this in this stew of three tales? Well, it, it happened in, in, I, I think, uh, two ways. Um, uh, the first thing was that at the time that I was that I wrote this, uh, we were actually um, starting some uh, initial fundraising and and development of two features that we wanted to shoot in Winnemucca, Nevada, which we're still hoping to shoot. But um, you know, they were both uh, a larger budget uh, films, and we were hoping to package them together and shoot them back to back. But sort of jokingly, Amanda gave me a hard time, and she was like. You know, why do you always got to write stuff that's so damn expensive? And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to do the fundraising. And so that I sort of took that as a personal challenge. And um, I just started, like, sort of surfing the web for ideas. And I stumbled across a YouTube video about this young lady who was uh, raised by a mother with schizophrenia. Um, and you got to forgive me if I, if I misspeak on any of the, the terms. Um, it's certainly not what I want to do, but it was about four years ago that I wrote the script. So a lot of my research sure. and development, like my brain sort of, I forget things as time goes on. So if I, if I misuse sure. a term, and we're going to have an expert yeah. on later, that's going to explain all yeah. of that stuff. So good. Well, so, so honestly, I, I, I saw that story and I was so incredibly moved by it. And I, I just thought it, I thought it thought it was haunting and filled with, uh, an incredible amount of love, and it surprised me that that was even something that was possible because it, it it sort of blew up my misconceptions of the disease, which led me down the rabbit hole. And then I started like studying it like crazy. I read a couple of books, I watched tons and tons of videos, and then I communicated with two people in the profession. Uh, I can't remember what college, uh, somewhere in um, Southern California, outside of Los Angeles. Uh, but a good friend of mine, Luke Meyer, who was um, uh, uh, um, uh, teaching some some psychology stuff uh, at the time, and so I ran all the stuff by him and asked if it was possible uh, that someone with the disease could, you know, uh, raise a kid. And they said, "Yeah." And then uh, I asked, "Is that possible that it's a triggering event?" Because um, I know with the, what I what I know about the disease is that it's something that's sort of in your genetic code, and it's either unlocked or it's not um again from my limited knowledge and and i said is this a possible triggering event you know something that's that sort of unlocks that key 
Uh, and what he and uh, you have to forgive me, I, I can't remember the other professor told me is that they didn't know of any concrete research that had been done uh, that would either prove or disprove that theory. But it was something that was discussed in the, the community a bit. So I started to dig on my own and I ended up finding tons and tons of cases where that was the case where, and it primarily what would happen is, um, I don't know how or why, whatever that is inside the people that it unlocks, but it, on the cases that I did find, it almost always happened directly after the child was born, which I thought was both terrifying and sad and yet somewhat beautiful because, uh, what, what, it triggers my brain to tell a story and my brain said, you know, God, what a, what a terrible disease, but what an, what a beautiful thing that the human body sort of at at least appeared to do to me, which is to sort of wait to completely let it go until after the child was born, as opposed to going through the stuff during it. But I did find cases that as well. So anyways, the, the point is I, that's where it sort of came from. And I, I wanted to do the best job that I could as a writer um, and as a production team to try to tell the story as honestly with the diseases we we could. Well, first of all, uh, when you're browsing the internet, the videos that you stumble upon are very different than the videos most people stumble upon. Um, that, that's a completely different website. Well, I'm digging. Um, I'm, so- yeah, I'm constantly <laughs> digging for you know, I go down the rabbit hole. So if I see anything that, that could oh, potentially sure. trigger a story, like I'm currently working on a, well, not currently working on, I just finished. Um, um, I got some development stuff right now to develop a, a few packages for films, but one of them is a Korean revenge story, uh, based on an incident that happened in Korea, like in a really, really small incident that I just dug for and found. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think writers do that. Yeah. I've always heard that, uh, open the newspaper or pay attention to current events and then take an idea and spin it. You um, have to a little bit into whatever, wherever your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And you only have a certain amount of pages. And so like, I wanted to delve in a little bit more into some of the religious aspects, not for the, um, uh, not for the sake of sensationalizing. Um, but because I, I did find uh, a lot of uh, research that shows that, almost universally around the globe people that experience this disease in the beginning they that's usually what people jump to conclusion that oh my god something's something's haunting me or something's you know what i mean so um sure you know even though it is a, a mental health thing people's perception is not necessarily mental health that you know very i think i think it's human nature to uh jump to the external uh as opposed to internal um, cause if, sure. If yeah. You did get if you were disease, hearing voices in your head, you might think it was God or a yeah. demon or yeah. Because then you at yeah, least have I, something to blame. And that to me would be much more peaceful. If all of a sudden I started hearing voices and I could say, all right, well, that's an external, then potentially I could get rid of that ex- external. But the second I was faced with the reality of its internal, uh, um, <clears throat> that's, that's much more scary to me. Yeah. The reason why this show even exists is because, uh, I dealt with, suicidal ideation for years and uh had a lot of depression issues and stuff like that so i noticed that horror movies and science fiction films kind of helped me through that so i thought let's let's talk about it from uh (laughs) let's talk about films so Mm -hmm. i i really do think that you captured that really really well um it's scary on a 
and and I don't want to mislead people that it's um a slasher film or what have you, but it's scary on a deeper level because is is this something that's happening to me or is this something inside that is going wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that was a terrifying aspect. So can you get into a little bit about the things you did or whether maybe it was the actresses involved who, who were both great, by the way, mm-hmm. um, of how you kind of tapped in to make this as realistic as possible so that you weren't, you know, a lot of times when, when, you know, they say, oh, well, Sucker Punch was about schizophrenia. Well, mm-hmm. in this movie, you're not fighting Nazis and robots and dragons. Uh, <laughs> it's very grounded and very, like I said, personally terrifying. Uh, can you get into a little bit of how you made that <clears throat> realistic? Well, I'd say, you know, we each sort of served our part. Um, I feel like I served my part best on the page. Um, and my my co-director, Wesley Alley, did a good job of sort of helping to bring those images to life. But on the page... Um, on the page and on the film, the, the idea was to recreate scenes over and over again with slight variations to not only make, send the characters on that path of like, um, not knowing what reality is, but I also wanted to sort of make the audiences get second guess and, and wonder where they were at in, in what was going on. Um, so that's what I feel like we did, but as far as the uh, portrayal, I mean, that's, that's almost entirely the actresses. Um, the other, the, <laughs> the slightly masturbatory uh, thing in this was that um, uh, when I wrote this, um, I did uh, intentionally try to find the hardest acting roles I could find for Amanda Markowitz and Victoria Matlock. And the reason it uh, is because Hollywood, when you're fortunate enough to get work and, you know, it's it's wonderful when you do, so don't get me wrong. But um, when they when you do get work, they constantly want you to do everything but act. They wanna they wanna put you in a box. You know the amount of times I've heard casting directors tell a room full of actors, uh, we just want to hire you. We want to hire what you are. So there's this this thing that I feel like is being taken away from actors and neutering actors and telling them, okay, well figure out what's your box and be that box and and play that box. But unfortunately, you have people like Amanda Markowitz and, and Victoria Matlock that are phenomenally talented that can step outside of that box and play opposites of what they are or, or stretch. And unfortunately, you're just very rarely given those roles or those opportunities. So I'll jump in. I'm sorry, I'm a little long-winded at times. Um, no, you're fine. But um, uh, both Amanda and Victoria took uh, significantly different um uh, uh, routes to achieving these characters. Um, Amanda works a lot more like I do. Um, she's a, a lot more method sort of Meisner based, um, but a lot more, um, a lot more methody. Whereas Victoria is one of the most technical actors I've ever seen. Um, because she was having to do so many layers, like for instance, you know, she's having to play a scene which you know there she's she's living a she's living a scene and in that scene she has an objective in the scene but yet she also has the um secret that she's keeping and then in addition to that she the character the the life that she's living doesn't know whether or not the scene that she's living is reality at the time and uh in order to do that uh victoria not only you know addressed the 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 purpose of the scene, the tone of the scene, the relationship with the other actor, the intention, 
but she also created all this subtext dialogue from I think three or four um, uh, different sort of emotional points of view from the voices that are in her head. She wrote that all out. I never read it. Uh, but when she's looking around and she's she's hearing things, she actually has dialogue that she was going through and things that were interrupting her. So I, I just I think the two just they did fantastic. But I, even I mean, which uh, the movie's getting really good reviews. Uh, there were a couple of comments that I saw where it was like, well, it seemed like a couple things happened a couple of times in the film. Like, why did you waste the time to do it to do basically the same thing twice or that? I thought was brilliant. Uh, yeah, that was, that was <laughs> definitely intentional. Um, <laughs> there were there were scenes in the film where I went, "Have I seen? Or did they did they repeat the? Th- oh, it's slightly different." We were and trying to get people to me, lost into it. Um, that was the intention. Yeah, I mean, there were times that I thought I was losing my mind uh, <laughs> you know, because I was like, I I don't think I've seen this scene before, but I kind of think I have. Um, and you know, there's yeah, I, I, the chopping of the wood and that sort of thing, where it's like, why do they keep mentioning this? Well, because where are we in this scene? Where, wh- how long have we been in this house well, <laughs> or that cabin? Was, uh, you know, that was also a function of wanting to be respectful of the disease. And I know people are hypersensitive about anybody writing anything with the, what they don't have a direct connection to, which I I personally think is ludicrous. Um, I think if you study something and if you believe that an individual can learn, then therefore you can um, express your opinions and your your views on that topic. Um, that being said, one of the things that I did um, face one of the biggest challenges when I asked uh, uh, the people that were involved in the mental health industry if it was possible for someone with that disease to uh, raise a child, um, what I was told is that it is possible depending on the severity of the disease, but in order to uh, cope with it, um, routine would have to be paramount and have to be so paramount that if anything disturbs that routine, it could potentially be really, really bad. So I, I built that into the, into the writing to, for, for both the idea of like getting people lost as well as, um, being true to my knowledge of the disease. And I am sure that nothing in this film is going to disrupt that routine, uh, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Uh, I'm not spoiling anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, (laughs) it's like the love. The um, there is one thing about this film that when you see it, you're going to go, "Oh, well." If you've seen the other film, it reminded me a bit of another recent film that I won't name because that's going to spoil some stuff. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me a, a bit of another recent film. The difference is. Uh, you guys handled it really, really well and natural, and it made a lot of sense. And that movie that I that was in theaters um, really dropped the ball. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, they really did a poor job with it, and you guys did a great job with it. So, bravo on uh, outclassing the uh, bigger budget films. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. And and I, and I and I won't say what that I won't say what that what that part is. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, motherhood and all of that, how it can be a triggering event theoretically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda is a I'm not sure if you guys have kids. Uh, yeah, actually, but 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 but, but Ama- Amanda had just had a kid, right? 
No, um, she had not. Had or she was pregnant at the time. We actually, it's so the film did take us a while to get done. And, and that's one of the most difficult things about uh, indie filmmaking. Like sometimes you'll literally, cause it does take a while. You'll, like you said, you'll see something in theaters and you go, Oh, we wrote that four years before you guys did. It just took us longer to get done. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, we actually, three babies were birthed. Um, uh, shortly after this film, uh, the, the co-director, uh, Wesley Alley had another child, uh, just shortly after this film, uh, his wife got pregnant, Amanda shortly after the film got pregnant and shortly after the film, my wife and I, uh, got pregnant. So three babies came out like, I mean, they're all within a few months of each other. <laughs> so uh, so no one had had kids like prior to the filming or during the filming or anything like uh, that? Other than Wesley. Wesley had already had uh, um, uh, two kids. But uh, yeah, no, my wife and I, we were actually, um, during this film, we were terrified because we were, uh, we had been trying to have kids for about a year at that point. And we had been told by the doctor that we basically couldn't have kids. So I think there was additional stresses and fears because Obviously, the the longer you wait to have kids and the older you are, um, the the likelihood for complications increases. So we're writing, we're basically developing a movie about some of that, <laughs> whilst trying to get pregnant, and um, it was it was terrifying. Um, but we're so happy. We yeah. So we got a little baby, and Amanda does as well. Yeah, I, I was wondering if they would film scenes about you know. Uh, birth causing the schizophrenia or being a triggering event for the schizophrenia and uh, losing the kid and not having custody and all that. And then going home and going, Hey kids. (laughs) So, (laughs) so they, they didn't have kids at the time. Uh, Did the movie, since it happened so since the, since it happened so quickly after you filmed, uh, were there any lingering kind of thoughts for them of, you know, uh, let's not, let's not make reality out of fiction or. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think we just, I, honestly, this, this film, uh, uh, was so hard, uh, um, emotionally. And, uh, um, I mean, you saw the location. It was not easy. We had to take everything across that wire footbridge. Um, uh, but everything was done. We just, I felt like everybody sort of had a, just took a big breath and we were all basically like, all right, let's, let's live life now for a little bit. So we, yeah, I think we all just sort of took a big, big breath. And, um, I think all of us tried to just do something super uplifting and positive after going through something so taxing. Yeah. I mean, cause just, I mean, again, the horror of emotion is, uh, is really what sticks with me about this film. And, uh, I think it's kind of cool that you guys were able to go, okay, we're done. Back to life. I had a hard time getting back to life after watching it. So (laughs) yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's, it's, you got to do that. You got to take a breath. I like to, I like to do that with any films. I don't know. I don't like to get stuck in any genre. So I like to do something deep and dark and follow it up with something lighthearted. So cool. Now, uh, and you mentioned religion, um, which is a big interest of mine. I, I love studying all different religions. And uh, I found it kind of interesting that 
the movie kind of opens up with some references to religion and then her character's like, eh, oh, okay, you know what? Maybe. And then perhaps it comes back later on for a maybe or a yeah, or maybe she'll take on more of a religious uh, thought process. You said that was included intentionally as backstory. There's also Amanda I mean, her character <laughs> uh, is dealing with a breakup. It's mm-hmm. kind of the sparking moment of the film mm-hmm. where the most unrealistic uh, thing in this entire film is the idea that someone cheated on Amanda. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 let's, let's just let's make that clear I right know. now. Just, um, where'd that come from? That's why we got it out of the way in the beginning yeah, before uh, people got to know her. So. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm I'm not believing this, guys. Um, not anyone who had their head on straight. Yeah. So, the um, there's even a point uh, in the film where she's blaming herself for getting cheated on, mm-hmm. where she's like, "Oh, you know, really, it was my fault." Which no, it wasn't. Obviously, it's never your fault. Mm-hmm. What went into that kind of backstory of she's dealing with depression and, and, or some sort of, uh, you know, anxiety and maybe she has a personal conflict or doubts about religion, uh, that sort of thing. It seems like a very well-developed character. Yeah. Um, to be completely honest, a, a lot of the, a lot of the backstory, um, I usually, when I write a script, I'll, I'll usually write like, 20, 30 pages of backstory that, that people never see. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't always remember all of it when the years go by. Um, I, I, I know that's probably not a great answer, but um, my brain sort of goes, okay, and we, we're moving. Um, so sure. I, I can't quite pinpoint exactly uh, uh, what that was. I know we needed a device because um, I wanted to play with the idea, obviously, of, of, of that being a triggering event is, is pregnancy. So um, we could either give her a boyfriend or, uh, you know, just make her not have a boyfriend. But I wanted her to deal with that um, idea of, of the possibility of uh, um, being pregnant. So we thought it was a stronger choice to have someone that she uh, loved and cared about. Um, but then we also didn't really want to have to be completely honest, when we wrote this thing, we were trying to really, really do a female empowerment film. Uh, I don't want empowerment. I don't want to misuse the phrases either, but we wanted to do a very, very, very female driven film. So we, we wanted to have as little male involvement as possible yet. You know, there is a pregnancy. So obviously there's, there's some, uh, at least with modern science. Um, sure. So, yeah. So, I, I I do know we need, we needed to incorporate uh, that character to some degree, or, or we felt as though we needed to, uh, and we also didn't want them to be a large part of the story. We wanted it to really be isolated, you know, two sisters in a cabin. Um, so yeah, it's sort of it, it, to the best of my knowledge, that's where I remember it. Uh, and it's a shame Amanda couldn't make it because I'm sure she would uh, have this part way more down than I than I remember. When it comes to religion, that's where Lynn Shay, uh, who has, you know, I'm not going to mislead people. She's not the main character. But when it comes to Scream Queens, she's like the queen mum of Scream Queens. Yeah. Uh, she's royalty. So having her involved in the film in any way, in a small but important role, I think that's 
noteworthy. People are going to want to check uh, check it out the movie just to see her put on a show. How did she get involved? I know that you knew her uh, before. Uh, someone involved had known her previously. So uh, tell me about how she got involved and you got the lucky, lucky uh, strike of working with a legend. Oh, very much. Um, well, she, you know, I, I was lucky enough to um, – I had gotten to work with her I think twice before this as an actor. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I got along really well with her and I, I had a great deal of respect for her work. I actually got to play her son in a movie um, called Texas Heart. Um, so we got to hang out all day one time and then had a couple other scenes with her. And I, I can't remember what other movies, I think I've done three movies with her now. Um, but, uh, uh, so I did have a previous relationship. Um, but I, I didn't want to just lean on that and be like, Hey Lynn, would you please maybe sort of, um, uh, I, obviously we did reach out to her, but, um, I didn't make the contact. Uh, I, I believe we ended up having, uh, Wesley, uh, uh, do the initial phone call and contact. Um, cause I just didn't want to, I didn't want to play on that whole, Hey, you're, you know, I worked with you, you're a friend. Or, yeah. Do you, you owe me a favor? Yeah. yeah because that's totally not the case. Her, you know, she's already given me yeah. so many favors and just like advice with acting and, and, and life. And, um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the one to make that call. Um, though I would have, if it came down to that, but apparently she liked the story enough and um, enjoyed talking with Wesley uh, enough and, and, and was interested. Um, now I would have loved, loved, loved to, uh, like you said, I, I'd love her to be in the film more. Um, I would have loved to play in um, a little bit more of the psychosis of it and, and having Amanda's character sort of second guess what is reality and what is now. And, and what have you, because one of the major things about the disease is that your dreams become more and more vivid. Um, but unfortunately, and I can't remember uh, if it was, you know, uh, budgetary or, or time or uh, the amount of days we could potentially work with her. I can't remember exactly, um, but we were limited in the amount of time that we could um, that we could uh, uh, work with her on this one. So, so we we were very blessed to have her on board, and she brought a lot to the table, a lot of good ideas, a lot of um, in-depth thought behind it. Um, but we, you know, we definitely didn't have as much time as we would have liked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's the thing for horror fans. Mm -hmm. If Lynn Shea is in it, you're going to want to check it out, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But if you come for Lynn Shea and she has a small but important role, you're going to see two actresses that, I, I mean, I know there may not be a lot of crossover between, uh, horror fans and bold and the beautiful fans. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe there is maybe, I don't um, uh, but for, for those of you who may not know of the other two actresses, get ready. Cause they more than hold their own, uh, in really a film that not a lot of, not a lot of downtime as far as this film goes. There's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emotions, a lot of, uh, layered emotions like you mentioned earlier of of being confused but maybe keeping a secret and mm -hmm. you know that sort of thing it's um it, it there, there's a lot going on in the film and everybody holds their own uh really really well so it is a fantastic film i recommend it uh, i really really loved it so that leads me to think you surely you have other great plans that you're in the, that you're working on. 
that are going to blow us all away. I know uh, your background is more comedy, right? But are there more horror? No. Are there, you know, <laughs> it's actually not anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. I, mean, I just, I just, just, fr- just from your, uh, yeah. your email address. I, I was know. like, uh, it- well, I started off as a stand-up comedian. I actually, I started off with TJ Miller and Hannibal Burris and, uh, Kumail and a few other guys, little rel. I started with him. I used to actually book him for shows on the road. And so I started in stand-up comedy, but no, I, um, I was one of those really sad clowns that put on a face. And then when I realized it, I found it was much more healthy to write, um, drama and horror <laughs> and tragedy than it is to do stand-up comedy. Cause I feel like stand-up comedy is like hiding emotions, whereas um, films, I feel like, do a much better job exploring and allowing you to truly release and feel those emotions. So well, that's why I do what I'm doing now because I'm not I'm not creative. I don't I mean, as far as making movies yeah. and stuff like that. I, and watching horror films, watching science fiction mm-hmm. films, they help purge a lot of those. Uh, mm-hmm you know, mental health demons that uh, I think that, you know, and that's why there's a lot of people that are in the horror community who, you know, whether it's schizophrenia or not, or, you know, maybe just depression, anxiety, whatever, that it's, maybe it's not surprising how many people in the horror community have these issues. And it's, it's not that horror caused the issues. It's that they're seeking out a way to, in a healthy way, purge those kinds of feelings Mm -hmm. or those, you know, thoughts. Uh, so yeah, very good. So what, what is, uh, what is the, the family of three tales productions doing next? You know, I don't know what's going to come next, uh, uh, with us. I know we, we worked on quite a few projects, um, and we got several that, uh, um, we'd really like to get off the ground. I, I, consistently I'm writing and, uh, I've, we've got at least three, uh, stories right, right now that, uh, um, uh, would be fantastic. So we've got a, um, one that we did as a short called good girl. Uh, uh, we co-produced with Darren Bowsman, Amanda, uh, uh, starred in it. Uh, and Wesley Alley was a uh, director in it. And I've got an outline for that as a feature. Um, it's basically saw meets 50 shades of gray. Um, but uh, uh, that one's a really, really fun project. Um, and then we, like I said, the, the two in Winnemucca, Nevada, one of them was a, a psychological thriller. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's about a police officer that's dealing with her own sort of internal struggles with wanting vengeance. So I'm, I'm very influenced by Korean revenge movies. And then we did a, a sort of a ghost story up there as well. So, um that one's about sort of uh, um, there was a really really nasty tragedy up there in Winnemucca, uh, um, uh, like a couple hundred years ago. But it's called um, uh, Across the Tracks. Um, it had to do with the uh, Native American tribe there uh, and the locals long long time ago. And then I sort of um, like you said fictionalized it and and brought it into modern day and dealt with some of that and and made it into a ghost story. But um, any one of those, if we could do them, I'd be super, super happy. That'd be, that'd be so much fun. Uh, I would love, uh, a different take on a ghost story. I think uh, I've mentioned this in a, another episode, uh, where I, I, I want different cultures, uh, stories represented. So that would be awesome, but I got to tell you, 
Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey meat Thaw sounds pretty good. Uh, who, uh, who wouldn't want to see Christian uh, Christian Grey? I think is his name. Who wouldn't want to yeah. see that guy tortured for a while? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's amazing. Uh, I, I would really, really, really love to see that. So, uh, and you said that's that's based on a short called Good Girl. Yeah, that one, and that one's already out. Um, so I don't know if you can get the a short screen, is if yeah. you can get a screener from Amanda, but. Yeah, and a, a lot of this again, it really comes down to I just uh, you know I love uh, I love the people I work with so much. Um, you know, obviously my wife Victoria uh, Amanda is one of my absolute best friends, and her husband, you know, Andy Weisenberg. Um, they're just all really really good people, and um, Amanda l- always plays the 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 bubbly character when she's given it by, like I said, Hollywood stuff. But she has such an amazing range as an actress that. Um, I find myself writing for her uh, as well as Victoria a lot. And so I'm constantly writing these roles that are a little bit darker, a little bit deeper. Uh, and Good Girl is definitely one of them. So um, it's that is one I would love, love, love to write. And we the outline's already finished. We got it copywritten. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, we did the short with Darren Bowsman, um, you know, director of Saw 2, 3, and 4. Um, so it's, it's certainly something that um, – I think would be in that wheelhouse, but uh, we'll we'll see where we go from here, I guess. Well, I am already looking forward to a potential good girl. And uh, speaking of good, uh, you're a good guy uh, for uh, hanging out with me and uh, talking about the movie. Like I said, it's some amazing performances. It's a horror movie that you think you might know where it's going, but then it doesn't go there. It goes somewhere else. Uh, Just a really, really good movie. And, I think it also is bringing attention to you know, a mental illness that we don't hear about very often. Uh, so uh, thank you, really. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much, David. And if, for listeners, if you watch the movie and you enjoy it, you know, please tell a friend. Give us a nice comment on whatever site you saw it on. If you didn't like it, then uh, don't, read it, don't write any bad comments because my mother reads them. So... Do not break his mom's heart. Come on now. Uh, So thank you. Everyone, check out The Voices. I know you're going to love it. You will not break his mom's heart. Now, I want to explore what schizophrenia is. How does it affect a person and their family? So I reached out to Linda Stalters. She is a retired advanced practice registered nurse psychotherapist with broad-ranging experience as a clinical practitioner, educator, advocate, organizer, and speaker. And she is the founder of Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Alliance of America. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Since Hollywood often doesn't give a very realistic portrayal of what schizophrenia is, can you give us a sense of the variations in the illness? Uh, Is there a mild case and a severe case in general? Absolutely. There there is a continuum and uh, some people experience much uh, more severe symptoms than others. Uh, It is a brain illness and uh, a person's brain, even at conception, can be uh, challenged by their genetics and potentially other environmental uh, instances um, 
But and I, I don't know if you want to go into that, but. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, if there are certain things that can happen in life that can cause it. Uh... It's, it's predominantly genetic uh, gene mutations or uh, genetic uh, predisposition. It can be because of various things like uh, a mother when uh, the baby is in utero might have been exposed to a virus um, and it could be from uh, some trauma to the brain. Um, It is caused by changes within the brain that can cause uh, neurocircuitry um, problems within the brain so that the uh, connections and the communications within the brain are interrupted. It can cause changes within the structure of the brain. So it's a neurological brain disease. And um, it's nothing that anyone, it's nobody's fault. Uh, As a matter of fact, I was, uh, I I talked to some people uh, that used to think that it was because of the schizophrenogenic mother. And definitely it's not. However, if a person is, very traumatized, it, a trauma can cause changes within the brain as well. And so some young children can have symptoms, but of course, um, oftentimes we aren't uh, privy to the symptoms that they might be experiencing. Um, and I've talked to many people who said that even when they were three, four, seven, that they had symptoms that they now know was part of their schizophrenia. That, like, they would talk about um, the the uh, shadow that followed them, or one person wrote a uh, poem when they were seven, talking about the voices in her head and outside of her head, and how challenging that was to differentiate between the two, and. Um, Sometimes people, children might have some quirkiness that, you know, nobody recognizes as uh, something that's um, uh, problematic, but in retrospect can say, oh, well, you know, they were a little different. Um, And sometimes um, there's no indication at all. And uh, generally people don't display the symptom, the behavior because of the symptoms. Now, it's not a behavioral disorder, okay? Uh, it is a brain disorder. And because of the changes within the brain causing uh, some symptoms like auditory hallucination, perhaps voices or hearing other kinds of sounds or uh, delusions, uh, you know, paranoid delusions or uh, thinking someone is um, after them or poisoning their food or whatever, uh, that causes them to respond uh, to that internal stimuli, um, which looks like people think that that's volitional behavior. Well, no, if you thought that uh, someone was poisoning your food, you wouldn't need it, would you? So people can have different, you know, a different severity. But um, when they perhaps hit adolescence or early adulthood, uh, they may have the first what 
super positive for a psychotic break. And, um, and it, what is very important is to recognize that early on and when they are having symptoms um, earlier, which can be apathy, uh, uh, isolation, um, so that they, they have almost symptoms like um, depression. So sometimes people are uh, diagnosed with depression or children with ADHD um, and they're, they're treated as such. And you know, ADHD medication isn't necessarily a good medication to give someone who has uh, schizophrenia. Um, so it's also very difficult sometimes to differentiate between bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia because they're very, very closely related in symptomology. People with bipolar disorder can have a psychosis on either end of the continuum of depression and mania. So, um, but I can tell you that it is a myth that everyone who has schizophrenia is violent. Um, they are much more likely to be very, very frightened of their surroundings. And if they do respond in a violent way, it's in a, it's really response to their hallucinations, delusions. Right. What they and, perceive as being a real threat, it may not be a threat, right. but gotcha. Right. And uh, so that's why it is so important to uh, recognize the changes early on, which are very, very, very different difficult to do, especially in adolescence when all adolescents, you know, behave very strangely sometimes and we can't differentiate between normalcy and, you know, uh, abnormalcy. Boy, did, but, did you know me when I was an adolescent? Because uh... <laughs> we all are that way, aren't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't, I mean, just an aside, um, for, when, for instance, when I was a, a little kid, I very briefly uh, was best friends with Dopey from Snow White. Um, right, and right. that's normal. That's not different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, that's not necessarily a sign that someone is going to then hear voices and stuff like that in adolescence no. or as an adult. Um, no. so obviously, uh, you know, that we're very much, uh, wanting to dispel the stigma of mental illness being something that causes people to be violent. Um, so, uh, thank you for mentioning that. How common is a form of schizophrenia as far as, I mean, I, I don't know if you have an exact percentage of the population that suffers from it or. So what, what, and this is a study that our organization is trying to, uh, to do right now to uh, clarify what those numbers might be, because right now it's uh, almost, um, it's difficult to differentiate. Like I say, it's schizophrenia spectrum and about 1.1% of the population. So we have, what, over 300 million people. So we have uh, over 3.2 million people who have schizophrenia. That doesn't include the bipolar disorder with psychotic features, sure. um, which include, you know, it brings it up to a much greater number. And uh, then it affects, when we talk about we improve the lives affected by these illnesses. That includes the families 
in the community, especially the families, because you talk about stigma. It's not stigma. It's discrimination. Sure. Yeah. Have, thank you. If, if you have a heart attack, you get treated. If you have a brain attack and you go into the hospital, go into the emergency room, they tell you to come back when um, you have done something to yourself or to someone else. Well, that's, we don't ask someone to come back when they have a, a, an arrest, sure. when their heart stops beating. Um, it, but we do that for people. Um, our organization is trying to change that. We want to reclassify schizophrenia to start with schizophrenia spectrum as a neurological brain disorder so that we quit treating people like they um, are different from someone who has a heart condition. And we stop criminalizing people who have a brain illness. We treat people differently if they have another brain illness called Alzheimer's. We don't let people who are confused and disoriented and also experience hallucinations and delusions. Uh, we don't let them run barefoot in the snow, homeless, and incarcerate them because of their illness. We actually put out a silver alert to try and find them. And if they end up in the hospital, we tell their families with schizophrenia, it's totally the opposite. Nobody looks for them. If they are, uh, if they're taken to the hospital or incarcerated, uh, the parents can't, can't find out because of the HIPAA laws. And we're trying to change that so that there's a compassionate communication between caregivers and other clinicians and facilities where people might be housed. The greatest facility for people who have a severe neuropsychiatric brain illness are the jails and the prisons. They are not facilities for treatment. No, uh, thank you for saying that. Thank you. Um, the From the outside looking in, it seems like this would be an easy thing to spot of if you're hearing voices that aren't actually there, well, I need to go, I need to go see a specialist. I need to, I need to get checked. But I can also kind of see where someone might think uh, if you're all, if the illness is causing you paranoia, where you might think it's some government implant or someone's plotting against you or, or a ghost or demon or, or, can you talk a bit about the struggle to identify the disorder and getting the person to accept, I need to go get help? Uh, I actually know uh, a friend of a friend is dealing with this with this right now, where they are saying, well, maybe I don't need help. Maybe I'm, I, I don't know, have superpowers or, or something along those lines. Is it, is there a struggle there? Or do most people say, whoa, something, something weird is, is going on. I need to get this looked at. Um, a, totally a struggle. Um, sometimes early on when they start having some of those what we call prodromal symptoms, like uh, they might hear something or they might uh, not feel so good. They, some people actually know something's uh, gone awry and they will seek help. But once they go, uh, they have that psychotic break. They, it's also neurological and they have what's called anisognosia. They don't know they're ill. They don't perceive it. They, uh, they don't have the ability to be aware that they are ill and everything that they're experiencing is real to them. And so if you, if you didn't think that you had diabetes 
um, would you take insulin? No, you wouldn't. Um, and so if you don't think that you have a brain illness, you wouldn't take medication or seek care. So it is a huge struggle for, uh, for people to help someone to get help. And so um, it, some of the things that we can do is um, there's a really good book that explains anosognosy very well and how to talk to people. And it's called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help by uh, Dr. Javier Amador. And uh, he, he uses what he developed as the called the LEAP uh, uh, program to uh, how you talk to people. First, you listen, you empathize, you agree with what you can agree with, and then you partner with them on their journey. And it's not about telling them that they're ill, but helping them to accept some help and uh, being able to cope with what they're experiencing. And, and it is a challenge. And sometimes if you can get them into their primary care physician and say, okay, really, it's time for your, you know, your annual checkup. And um, it, there, there's just so much involved. And uh, again, the HIPAA laws and the aging out of your parents, uh, being under your parents' care, uh, makes it even more challenging. Um, and so uh, there, there's just so much I can talk about, but um, we're really working to change that law uh, with HIPAA so that people can uh, talk to the clinicians, the caregivers can be heard, because any of these horrific things that happen and uh, the, the people who might perpetrate these horrific, violent crimes, uh, their parents were begging for help. But because of the misguided um, patients, advocates, who said, you, you have the right to refuse treatment. Well, if you don't know you're ill, and you're very ill, and uh, the parents know what they're, what they're talking about, what their thoughts are, and they're talking about their delusions and hallucinations. And, um, and if, the, if the clinicians would listen to them and, uh, you know, give them the opportunity to be treated, give them the opportunity to live a really meaningful life. Because the longer someone is in psychosis, the more uh, progressive uh, the, the damage might be to the brain. Um, I can and, even see where, not to interrupt, but I can see where someone yeah. would say, well, this nurse, this doctor is in on it. And right. it's, you right. know, I mean, the mind, uh, I, I I deal with a generalized anxiety disorder, which is obviously very different. But at the same time, I thought that was normal life. And until right. it got explained that it wasn't, and I went, oh, I can actually get right. treatment for this. Uh, right. But if it was so severe that you thought that, you know, things like conspiracies and that sort of thing were plotted against you by random people you saw on the street, then right. I can see where you would resist getting the help. That's absolutely. That's, I mean, it, it it's, is, that's terrible. Very difficult. And another thing is if they've been having symptoms for a long time, you know, just mild, you know, hearing some voices or some sounds or different, um, you know, mild symptoms, they may just think that that's normal. They may think that everyone hears voices, you know. Yep. They, and and of course they they are, are can be very suspicious. 
And to be able to develop a, a trusting relationship with someone, having um, you know a good clinician or someone who can help them. But early intervention is critical, critical. And uh, getting uh, authorization uh, to release information to your family is critical when someone is stable enough to sign those papers. That's very important. And then when they're stable enough to understand that they are ill, that the medication helps them, then what they, you know, they can uh, do an, an advanced directive, a psychiatric advanced directive. Like, you know, people have advanced directives for other illnesses. You can have an advanced directive for psychiatry so that you can say, when I'm so ill that I don't know that I'm ill, you can um, ensure that I take my medication. This is the medication that works for me. This medication I've had uh, bad side effects from. Um, this clinician has always been very helpful. This facility has not been a place where I want to go. Um, and those kinds of things are important for them to be able to uh, spell out so that when they are ill, when they start becoming ill and have an exacerbation, then uh, they can uh, hopefully receive the treatment that they need. And that's not always easy to do either. And um, we, we also uh, want to, you know, right now the poor police, I feel so sorry for them because they are usually the front line uh, people to, to respond to a crisis. And that many receive crisis intervention training, but that's not their calling. Um, but it's important that they do receive that training so that they can know how to de-escalate. They know how a person is thinking. And what they see may not be what you think they see. They may see you as someone different. They may see you as, I mean, their vision can be very different than what you think. They may think you are uh, the military after them, or the CIA or the um, or the, you know, whatever. So um, there are just so many things to have to consider. As a matter of fact, I went uh, to talk to Se Secretary Ben Carson, and I said, you know, I know that you want to help, and I know that the president wants to help um, folks who are homeless and incarcerated and to stop this. Um, but I said, you can't just give them a hamburger and housing. That's not going to work. They, you know, they have the opportunity to be the people that are homeless to be in shelter, but they're not going to go in there because they're not treated. They know that there'll be people in there that aren't treated. And the, when we talk about violence, uh, the violence is because people are not treated, untreated, um, and don't get, have the opportunity to be treated. And when something horrific goes wrong, they are as much a victim as anyone else sure. because they were, they were not taken care of. And their life and their family's lives are so destroyed. So let's imagine, uh, since we talk about science fiction on this show, let's imagine a perfect world where the funding and the programs are there uh, and someone can go in, 
get the medication, get the counseling they need, all of that stuff. Uh, once someone does commit to getting that help, can they live a normal life? I mean, it, it, like as far as the outlook of um, if someone has, I guess, a severe form of a schizophrenia, can they resume life and not have that issue? Or is it something they have to fight for the rest of their life? Can it, you know, can they get over it? <laughs> I mean, so, okay. So, so this is generally, you know, some people can have a one or two uh, time psychosis um, and, and that's it. But most generally, this is a chronic illness like um, other chronic illnesses like arthritis or something else and diabetes and you wouldn't stop taking your insulin. And sometimes medication, it's a very difficult task. It's challenging to find the right medication for someone. Um, to find the, and it's not just medication that someone needs. Um, you know, they need help in coaching with school or work, whatever that they want to do, social skills, um, maintaining, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their activities of daily living and helping them move into what is their particular personal uh, a spot where they are as stable as they're going to get. Some people, I know people who have been CEOs of corporations. Uh, I know people who are um, attorneys, CPAs, MDs, PhDs, um, the people who uh, are, are comedians, um, people. But on the other hand, there are people who are not able to reach the same pinnacle that they would have before they were diagnosed. And, but you can't give up, um, and there are many medications. There are some that are better than others. They have some that are in the pipeline. The uh, least um, researched and developed medications are, are antipsychotics because they are so expensive to um, create, and there's such a failure rate, and... Um, the, the least amount of money to research, uh, such as uh, to the National Institute of Mental Health, um, they get less funding than other uh, departments within NIH. So, so we need that fundamental to find out, okay, what neurological pieces need to be addressed? What can we do to prevent? And uh, once a medication is discovered that really helps a person doesn't mean that it'll continue to help them, that they might um, have to change medications again. They may have to increase, decrease. It's a balancing act. There are side effects that have to be adjusted and uh, taken care of. And, um, and if a person thinks, which is frequent, they think, oh, well, I'm doing really pretty well right now. I don't need this medication. That's a bad they idea. Go off their, well, but they don't know that. And they will, you know, uh, they may go off their meds only a couple of days and they have slid out, out from under uh, that um, stability. And then it's very difficult to get them back. And if they stop one medication that was um, really successful and effective, they may not respond to that same medication 
when they try to uh, reestablish uh, that stability again. It's a very, very complex, very, uh, very challenging um, illness. And I know people who have been incarcerated, who have been homeless, who are doing spectacularly well. Um, uh, we have people who work for us who are amazing people, very, very amazing people. They just really have to figure out what are some of the stressors. And oftentimes they really are overachievers because they want to, they want to prove that they're capable, but that puts them in a, in a challenging position because that stress can trigger their uh, symptoms. So you have to, yeah. And it's very important when someone is working in whatever situation, whether it's a housekeeping or um, in, in a corporate office, to um, observe the ADA. So what is going to help people who are who might uh, respond to the external stimuli around them? Uh, we have to give them some accommodations. You know, if, often people who are taking medications, it's difficult to get up in the morning because they are really sedatives. So allow them to start later in the day. Um, and uh, if, if, if they are out and about, give them a cubicle that they have some privacy and they don't hear all the other uh, external stimuli that's going on. Um, and just do the accommodations. And if you were going for chemotherapy, your employer would give you that opportunity to go as frequently as you needed to to the doctor for your chemo, right? Sure. Well, they won't do that if you're going for your a psychiatric uh, doctor's appointment. So, um, you know, we have a lot to do to change uh, the discrimination that people do experience with these illnesses. And to, to so this is uh, uh, Minority Mental Health Month. And so to recognize that people um, of uh, color, they are doubled up on discrimination yeah. because they are uh, compounded. It's compounded uh, because uh, they, they have these illnesses and then they are misperceived and sometimes they're over-diagnosed or under-diagnosed and un under-treated. Um, so what we need is comprehensive care. We have to stop, um, you know, shutting off care from the neck up from the rest of the body because a person is a whole person and your brain really regulates the whole body. And a person with schizophrenia has more than just schizophrenia. They have other illnesses that kind of go with that in other risk areas. So a person really needs total medical care. I would prefer to just eliminate mental health care. It's all medical care eliminate the um, exclusions of care in the hospital and have ongoing chronic health care. Well, you are preaching my religion right now. Uh, thank you for, for dedicating your life to this. Tell me uh, a little bit about uh, the Schizophrenia Related Disorders Alliance of America. What do you guys do? And importantly, where do people go to find out information and donate to the cause? Oh, thank you. 
Um, so we provide support groups for people who are diagnosed and their family members. We, um, right now, almost all of our groups, some of them are opening up, it depends on the area, but all of them are uh, virtual. But even when we don't have this virtual situation globally, we were pioneers on providing virtual groups because oftentimes family members can't get to a face-to-face group because they are caring for a very ill uh, child. Um, and uh, people who are diagnosed for one reason or another uh, have a challenging time getting to a face-to-face group, although we would prefer that they go to a face-to-face group that people who are diagnosed that they can increase their social skills and, and connectivity with other people. But um, I think we have seven uh, conference call groups a week for people who are diagnosed, and we have a few for people who are caregivers, and we call that families for care, and uh, the one for people who are diagnosed is Schizophrenia Alliance, Psychosis, Support, and Acceptance. So it's not just for schizophrenia, it's for anyone who experiences psychosis. And um, we actually have support groups, face-to-face and uh, virtual groups around the world. And we have some of our materials in um, Hungarian, Russian, uh, Spanish, German, um, and we have Farsi, and we have groups in India and uh, Japan and Africa and some other places. And um, so we also do a lot of advocacy work uh, to, like I say, reclassify schizophrenia spectrum as a neurological brain disease. We believe that that will change the treatment paradigm, both for medical treatment and social treatment of people who experience psychosis. And um, so we, we uh, have our working to make that happen with the APA to change the description in the uh, DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that clinicians use to diagnose. But it isn't just the clinicians that use that. The criminal justice system uses that. And sometimes our uh, people will call us and say that our, my, my son's in, in jail right now. His the doctor wants him in the hospital, but the attorney says that, well, the DSM says it's a psychological disorder. It's not a brain disease, so they need to stay in jail because they can, uh, it's a behavioral disorder. So we have to change that. And um, it'll increase um, the availability of um, funds for research. And we're working on a project to quantify the cost of not caring so that we can present to the legislators, okay. There you go. This is how much it costs us if a person doesn't get the appropriate treatment. And we're making that very comprehensive. There are a lot of different studies out there where we're going to do a data and, you know, meta-analysis plus do some other 
uh, analyses to bring some of that together and present it to the legislators. And one of our board members happens to be former Congressman Tim Murphy. So he knows what they need. And we have a group of researchers working on that. We have a white paper for reclassification and comparing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's to schizophrenia, what the symptoms are, what the genetics is, and uh, what incarceration is and treatment and homelessness and how we treat people. And um, well, let's see, there must be more that we do. Oh, we're building our chapters around the country. And uh, so we're just in the beginning of doing that so that we have more um, grassroots efforts in every state. Right now we have a chapter in Florida, Maryland, Delaware. There's one uh, developing in Colorado and um, some other places that I can't remember, but we're, we're working on that so that we have a broader base. Um, so I think that's about it. And please go to uh, www.sasarda.org. Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Alliance of America.org. And you can call our office at 240-423-9432. You guys are doing amazing work. I think this is incredibly important to stop um, criminalizing the idea of mental uh, illness um, and start actually helping people before the chaos erupts. Um, you know, and I think that once, you know, if you guys can deliver that and say, look, it, look at the cost on our society of not doing this. Uh, I think that we're going to see that um, we're, the whole society will be much, much better off if we invest in uh, helping people before, uh, you know, bad things happen, whether it's suicide or crimes or that sort of thing right. instead of locking people up so amazing uh thank you thank you so much for uh for joining me today you're very welcome and please change the language from mental health to brain health i i will do that i will i will work on that uh and and get that into my head as well so uh okay uh, thank you <laughs> thank uh, you thank you very much and just like i told you it's brain health you learn something new every day so brain health is the terminology we want to use. I, I really like that. So I want to thank my guests, uh, Linda Stalters, MSN of Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Alliance of America. Check them out. Donate to them. They're doing great work. And thanks as well to Bradley Fowler, the writer and co-director of The Voices. Make sure you watch that. And most of all, Thank all of you for listening to the show and supporting us. The show has been growing quite a bit over the last couple of episodes, and it's all because of you. We have a lot more growth to do, some really cool stuff coming up in the very near future. So make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Feel free to send us an email at this podcast will save the world at gmail.com. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet.